speaking of Saint Queen Lisa, yes. no profanity this time. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to our latest edition of the Roundtable Student Faculty Discussion Series, and we're very fortunate to have Professor Christine Zas here with us today. Um, she is a professor of public policy studies and political science, and I got all this information off the internet and from my peers, so don't be freaked out about this. Um, <laughs> she, she likes long walks. In the <laughs> <laughs> she um, has a distinguished academic career. She studied at Harvard as well as Duke, um, and she will be talking about women's organizations and their changing policy priorities. Um, so, please welcome, help me in welcoming Professor Goss. I will hopefully get to women's organizations by the end of this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought, um, and when we have job talks, we have job candidates come in, um, they're, pretty, they're always asked to do a sort of little um, intellectual biography or autobiography. Um, which I think is a really nice way of sort of understanding how people come to study the things that they do and why it matters to them. So um, I uh, will start with, I won't start at the very beginning, because that was, that was a long time ago, but I will start with um, when I was, uh, I was a college journalist um, and uh, wanted to be a journalist in my career. So I, um, after college, got a job at a new paper, a new startup newspaper. Um, that was back before the internet, um, when newspapers were still read. And the newspaper covered the nonprofit sector of the economy. And um, it's the nonprofit sector is a huge component of you know our system. Um, those of you who are in PBS and PBS 114 know that we as Americans are kind of distrustful of government solutions to things. And we, we are much less distrustful of nonprofit solutions. So as a practical matter, nonprofits do a lot of the work of you know alleviating poverty, educating people like you all. Institution right now, um, you know, providing arts and entertainment and so forth. So I covered nonprofit organizations for six years, and I carved out this beat looking at sort of how nonprofits affect public policy, um, both on the sort of front end, lobbying for um, you know different social programs or whatnot, um, but also on the sort of the, the back end, um, implementing public policy because nonprofits do, as I mentioned, a lot of that work. Um, one of the things I covered um, uh, was all the sort of community service initiatives that the federal government was undertaking. So this was the late um, second half of the first Bush administration and then the first uh, Clinton administration. So um, I was sort of full-time covering um, first, you know, President Bush's uh, commission. He set up a commission on national community service to try to sort of generate more community service, you know, opportunities more interested in. He had his famous points of light, much derided points of light initiative, which was actually really great. If you were a nonprofit that got one of these presidential awards, you know, it was you know, the pundits all made fun of it, but it really meant a lot to these little groups to be honored by the White House. Um, and then Cl President Clinton came in and wanted to sort of step it all up and create um, a national service program, which he did, and you guys are probably familiar with AmeriCorps. Um, so I became really interested in kind of civic participation, the nonprofit sector, and whatnot, and, um, you know, figured I would be doing that, you know, reporting for the rest of my life. I just love reporting. It was a great job. Um, but um, I decided that I needed to sort of learn more about the substance. Um, you know, I had, I had been a history and literature major, Latin American studies, essentially, in college. I knew nothing about public policy. I'd never taken a political science class. I was really in over my head. So I actually came to Duke and got an MPP. So I think I said on the first day of PPS 114 that I'm living proof you can get a good job with a Duke public policy degree. <laughs> um, and 
I worked um, very closely with uh, uh, Professor Cook, who does stuff on uh, youth violence and gun um, issues and whatnot. And this was at a time when there was a huge amount of gun violence um, in the city I'd been living in and, and the cities around the, in, around the country. Um, and so my kind of master's thesis project was looking at the very, very simple question of how this very small kind of civil society organization um, that was in the poorest, most crime-ridden part of Washington could uh, what could make a dent in the juvenile gun violence problem. Um, so it was a really tough assignment for me. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it led me to do field work in, um, in Anacostia and Congress Heights, those sections of Washington, I don't know if anyone's from DC, but you know, um, almost 100% minority, sort of a terrible at this point crime problem, terrible poverty, a lot of dysfunctional public housing, you know, nested within, you know, um, a dysfunctional government with a deeply corrupt police force. I mean, it was really a bad situation at that time in Washington. Um, but I really started sort of appreciating how important it was to have kind of civic participation. I mean, I saw these kind of, you know, welfare mothers, you know, who were just doing the civic work um, against these terrible odds. And um, I was persuaded um, by Professor Cook to go on and get a PhD, um, and, and he's still, I'm still paying him back for that advice. Um, not in a good way, no. Um, and I got a PhD in political science, and I, um, I came on board. I became more and more interested in civil society and civic participation and, and why that matters for the functioning of democracy and for all sorts of outcomes that we care about. Um, and there was a professor I had known briefly as an undergraduate when I was a student reporter, uh, a professor at Harvard named Robert Putnam, who was, as it turns out, doing the seminal work on the decline in civic participation in America, um, a, a, a study that became the book Bowling Alone that a lot of people may have heard of. I mean, it was getting a lot of attention at the time. So I came on board as, a, as his student um, and worked for five years on that book. Um, but it was, this book is just, it's wonderful. I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying to be objective here. It really is a wonderful book about um, sort of the, all the ways in which we've become disconnected from one another and why that matters for all sorts of outcomes, you know, educational performance, the performance of government, our health, our mental health, um, you know, almost anything you want to look at, you know, all those outcomes that we care about um, are enhanced by civic connectedness, social capital, civic participation. So I worked on that and I was kind of flailing about trying to find, you know, a dissertation topic. How many of you guys are planning to write senior theses or are writing them, right? So, so the hardest part, and, and if Professor Kelly doesn't tell you this, um, you know, she means to, the hardest part is, to, is finding a question, finding a good puzzle, finding a good thing that nobody else, the millions of people who are studying everything, that nobody thought of before, you know? And I was sort of in grad school, which is just an inherently miserable experience, and I was miserable <laughs> along with all my classmates and, and you know, sort of working on this project, but it wasn't really my project, and trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And I came home one day, I was living in Boston, came home, flipped on the TV, and on the television screen was this Denver news anchor who I had worked for as an intern in 1984. And I said, why is Ward Lucas on my television? I'm in Boston, he's in Denver. And the answer, of course, was Columbine. Um, the, the footage of the, you know, sort of the outside of the massacre um, was being beamed live, you know, across the country to news organizations. And, you know, this just really hit me. I'd gone to a very similar high school in Denver, you know, the demographic twin 10 miles to the east, basically. Had known people who had gone to Columbine, you know, and I just was, I was riveted and horrified by the coverage. And, you know, I just thought, we have this gun problem, and or crime problem, I should say, gun violence problem in this country, you know, but we don't really seem to be doing anything about it. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, there's, 
for, for all this violence that we have and these assassinations and assassination attempts on presidents and John Lennon killed and whatever, we, we, we never really seen a movement. I mean, I just found myself saying, where's the gun control movement? And, you know, I think gun control is a very controversial subject. I, you know, I think there's a, there is a really important policy question about what kinds of firearms regulations would work. Some of them might work, some of them might not work. That's a really important question. And, you know, I want to sidestep with the merits of it here because I think at the very least it was, it's an interesting puzzle. Um, you know, most people throughout the history of our polling have said they favor tighter firearms regulations. But they don't act like, you know, they don't mobilize to get them, right? So it just struck me that there was this missing movement, right? Um, you know, so we have all these, you know, we learn from political science that, you know, these, we have these terrible events that moves issues up the agenda, you know, but it d doesn't seem to very much with, with guns. So, um, so I found myself, you know, having had this history of sort of looking at civic participation in these more kind of benign senses, um, and, and also, you know, sort of this gun violence piece from six or seven years before, and here I'm sitting watching Columbine, which is bringing back my childhood, and I thought, you know, this is a dissertation. And um, my second lesson for you guys who are st struggling with questions is don't give up on your question, because I took this to my brilliant advisor, and he said, you want to do a dissertation about something that didn't happen? <laughs> that you can't do that. You can't study the non-barking dog. And uh, and I said, well, you know, but but they teach us in grad school that you have to study both the negative and the positive outcomes. So that you know, otherwise that's a terrible methodological failure on your part. And but I realized we've only studied social movements that have happened, which makes sense because we can study them because we can see them and we can interview people who are involved in them and so forth. But I thought it was really interesting, you know, to understand why people don't participate collectively. And this was struck me as a case where you could make you could make an a priori case that people you might have expected <coughs> movement or some sort of a public uprising of some sort. And so that's what I did my PhD dissertation on. And um, it's it's I'm coming up to what I prom what uh, you've promised I'm going to talk about, which is women's organizations. Um, those of you in 114 are going to hear some examples from this research on the gun problem. It turned out my advisor was right. It was a really hard question um, because you know there's all sorts of reasons why people don't do things. You know, if I ask you, you know, why didn't you, uh, um, you know, why didn't you give money to you know your favorite political candidate last time? Well, it could be that you don't have any money. It could be you just didn't yet get asked. It could be you didn't think of it. It could be you didn't get around to it. You didn't have a stamp. You know, the website was down. I mean, there's, and you probably, you probably don't even know yourself why you didn't do something, right? It's really hard to sort of figure that out. So I won't go through the whole dissertation, but suffice it to say, it was a re very long, frustrating process. It was a very tough question to try to get a handle on to the satisfaction of a dissertation committee and everything. But I think it was, it was really rewarding and interesting because it took me into sort of understanding the flip side of participation, which is, you know, the depression of participation in these kind of hidden ways, you know, and, and most studies of that um, kind of have focused on, you know, oppressive regimes and, you know, totalitarian states and they, you know, the reason people don't participate is because they get thrown in jail if they try, right? I mean, that's sort of what we know about what depressive participation. But, you know, I was doing it in a, in a country that was a free democracy, right? So, so one of the questions that I had was, okay, counterintuitive or, or counter, counterfactual. If we were going to have a gun control movement that looked something like civil rights movement, environmental movement, women's movement, who would be likely to lead this movement? You know, where are those people? And one of the, now I'm getting to the part that you wanted me to talk about, one of the obvious candidates would be American women, 
And this is so for several reasons. One, um, if you look historically, um, women's organizations have been at the forefront of just a host of um, social reform movements throughout history, social reforms. So, you know, when you guys, you know, eat food and don't die of botulism, you can thank, you know, women's organizations 100 years ago for getting clean food and drug laws in, in place. Um, you know, women were, women's organizations were very active in the abolition of slavery. slavery. Women's organizations were at the core of the temperance movement, the prohibition movement. Um, you don't always have to agree with their aims, but, you know, they were highly successful in the case of prohibition, I mean, at least in terms of getting a law passed. Yeah. So, uh, um, and by the way, they also helped lead the um, argument for repeal of prohibition. So, um, <laughs> can I acknowledge them? It was the well. It wasn't that. It was the crime. You know. So, so, yeah, no, and you yeah. know, juvenile violence in the 1950s. Women's groups were really active in that. I mean, it's fascinating if you look back. You know, we think of people are so organized and there's a million interest groups, and and that's true. There are, but in the old days, there weren't a million single interest groups. What we had was these big general purpose women's groups, and they did all that took on all this civic work and they did it in part because they weren't women weren't working and so you had women who were highly educated and frankly were bored staying home with their kids and so they joined groups like the general federation of women's clubs and the league of women voters and the american association of university women and the you know um, hadassah and you know there's a, there are a host of these kinds of big organ women's organizations and they they just you know they said we've got to reform this there ought to be a law and I mean, I'm convinced women are responsible for the growth of government, you know, for, you know, at least some significant portion of the growth of government, so for good or for ill. But, but anyway, so, um, so I thought gun violence is exactly the kind of thing they would have taken on 100 years before. And in fact, I look back, and the first federal gun laws that were passed of any import were in the 30s in response to the gangster violence coming out of Prohibition. And who, was, who were the lobbyists? The Attorney General of the U.S. and the General Federation of Women's Clubs for that bill. Um, so I thought, you know, where are the women? You know, and and it's the mystery is compounded by the fact that if you look at opinion polls on gun control, there's a, depending on the question about a five to twenty point percentage point difference in women's support for gun control compared to men. Women are much more supportive. They're more supportive of government regulation in general, but particularly of gun control laws, um, and they feel more intensely about it. Um, so you know, there's all these a priori reasons to think women might have been involved. So so I start saying, where are the women? And um, and so um, the, the, let's see, I want to go into the, yeah, let me tell you where the women were, and then I'll tell you the rest. Um, so right around the time that I'm saying, where are the women, um, I was talking to a gun control group doing an interview, and they said, oh yeah, I heard there's this woman in New Jersey who wants to start, who wants to have a march or something, a mother's march. And I said, oh, can you give me her phone number? And, you know, got her phone number, called her up. She was, literally, she was a part-time publicist for David Letterman. I think she worked one day a week. She had two small kids. Her hu she had a rich hu businessman husband. She was stranded in the suburbs. And she was just horrified by the shooting at the LA, the Jewish daycare center in LA. That just just got her in the way that Columbine got me. And she's like, you know, she said she called all these gun control groups. She First of all, she couldn't find their phone numbers. When she found their phone numbers, they couldn't call, they didn't call her back. She was just calling and saying, I have all these skills. I want to do something. Put me to work. And she couldn't even get a call back. Which right there says something about pr participation, right? You know, the number one predictor of whether you participate is whether you're asked. Now, you two, when I ask that question on interest group day, don't answer. Let your classmates answer. Although I'm giving you advance. That's, that will be in the question. Um, but the fact is these groups I weren't. Also in that class. Oh, okay. Okay, you don't <laughs> answer too. Um, so the, you know, so, so one, one issue 
that became really central to the dissertation and the book, it's now a book, was that you know, these groups really thought of themselves as sort of expert groups that had all the knowledge and didn't really try to mobilize the grassroots. So part of the reason there wasn't a movement is that nobody wanted to have one, right? Or nobody thought to have one. Um, so, so, but this woman, her name was Donna Dees, Thomas Dees, decided that she wanted to have one. She wanted to have a march. She wanted to get the moms out in the street. And she, using the internet and just, you know, a real kind of interesting kind of grassroots net, network of people who kind of, saw, she got a, you know, she got a mention on CBS Morning News and, you know, somehow just, she got a little bit of, she's very media savvy, got a little bit of media. And people started calling her up and she'd say, great, you know, you're in Michigan, great, you're organizing the state. And, and she pulled it off in nine months. I mean, they, you know, in, they had this massive march in Washington and then satellite marches in 63 other cities. There were, I mean, I was there, there were like 500, at least 500,000 people on the mall. They claimed 750, but it was at least 500. Um, so it was just way beyond anything anyone had ever seen before. And what was interesting is we did a survey, um, I did, um, a survey of a random sample of about 800 of them. And, um, which is actually, it sounds small, but it was actually a, a very good no, survey size. Good. So, I mean, I, can, I know everything about who these people were at this march. And you know, one of the things that I know about who they were is they were mostly women. And the, who were they? What kinds of women? They were, um, mo most of them had not been personally affected by gun violence. I mean, a, a large number had, and that's understandable, but these were women who were not necessarily personally affected, right? Um, they were highly educated. 50% 50, 50 of them had some graduate education compared to something like 17% of the US population <coughs> overall. Um, so way more educated than the average woman. Affluent, suburban, history of activism in women's rights. And you know, and other kind of rights causes coming out of the 70s and 80s. And I thought, this is really interesting. Here we've got this kind of public good issue. It's not a feminist issue. But we've got all these feminists showing up. And it made me really think, like, okay, so, so the women are there, they're showing up on the mall, but they're not really engaged in sort of an organized way in gun control. Except, you know, occasionally a group will sign on to a petition or something. But they weren't really working the issue. And it led me to, after I had finished that book, thinking about kind of how women's priorities have changed over time. And, and I think this, this gun, and, and whether sort of women's organizations' priorities are in sync with individual women's priorities. And that's kind of what I'm working on now. And I've got this massive project that's, you know, again, one of these huge unwieldy things that I need to kind of bring to closure. So, um, but I, I started sort of thinking about, you know, how do you get a handle on this? My intuition was that women's groups' priorities have changed over time. The nature of their engagement has changed and that that has really important implications both for women's voice and women's individual participation, but also for our democracy and the kinds of policies that get championed and the types of policies that get orphaned. Um, and so I started thinking, you know, how do you get a handle on that? How would you guys get a handle on that? I, you have an intuition that women's groups' policy priorities have changed. How do you measure that over time, over the last hundred years? How would you do it? Any ideas? You guys are doing senior theses. Have to think about the methods and data. How would you do it? I would pick two or three specific women's groups and try and track them over time. Okay. So start small and then work out and see if you can find patterns. Okay, them. great. So one possibility is that individual women's groups have shifted in, in <coughs> over time, right? Okay, what's another possibility for how you would measure it? I mean, that's great. You could measure the membership rates of in women's groups in general okay. and whether those have risen or fallen and if that corresponds with other yeah. um, historical trends or... Okay, so looking at membership in women's groups, which is great in theory, except groups lie. Yeah. Except their membership well, yeah. is always a yeah. problem. But okay, 
All right, so that would be that would be membership. That would be some proxy for the strength, maybe, or sure, representativeness. Yeah. But what about the priorities, the issues they care about? You could take on like five different maybe topics and see how many women, different women groups rally around this topic. Great. And then measure, you know. How do you how measure whether? Change. Okay, great. How do, how do you measure whether they're rallying around it? Well, you know, pretty much from the name, like, um, for example, if it's like women's Christian temperance union or uh -huh. something, back and forth. But how do you find out if they're rallying around it? Like, okay, so pick an issue. Let's let's pick the Iraq War. How do I know if women's groups? How do I measure? Can you check who's lobbying for any kind of bill that is trying lobbying to address? Lobbying for a bill, okay. So the lobbying records are only available for the last few years. Okay. You know, there's no, there's no systematic record going back through time of who's lobbying. But you guys are on the right track. How, how else, what, is, what is available over time? So what we want is a nice big data set that's nice and systematic. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I could so press coverage, so I could do a search of all the articles about Iraq and see if women's groups are quoted or something. But that's going to miss groups that are doing things behind the scenes that the reporters don't know about. Candidates that women would vote for and say that they supported these woke issues. Okay, candidates that women vote for. Okay, but that doesn't get group participation. That maybe gets at individual women's preferences for candidates and yeah. So you want a nice big. I want a nice big measure over time. Of what women's groups are interested in. Is there a registry of interest groups? There are. Um, there are directories that are, to in varying degrees of comprehensiveness. But it doesn't necessarily say what issues they're working on. It might get their mission, but it doesn't tell me if they're working on a particular issue. Would it help to track donations to women's groups? Um, no systematic measure of donations to women's groups. I was just thinking. I mean, you can get their budgets. To, I was thinking back to tax records. Can't get individual tax records. But you can you can get the organization's tax records, which will give you a record of how much from donations. But it still doesn't say what issues they're working sure, on. Sure, sure. Okay, you were the closest when you said I'm going to give you the. I'm thinking, yeah. You were the closest when you said lobbying records. It turns out PPS 114 students pay attention. There's this wonderful resource called the CIS Index, Congressional Information Service Index, which is these are these books. They're about that thick that have a list of every single hearing. Congress has ever held, going back to 1833. In these books also is a list of every witness, James Smith, and importantly, a list of every organizational affiliation. So if James Smith is lobbying for the League of Women Voters, the League of Women Voters shows up as a line entry in these books. So how do you, how do you pull the women's groups out of it? You have a systematic measure. I, can know, I know the name of the group. I know the brief subject summary of the hearing, I know the date of the hearing, and I know an accession number so I can actually look at <coughs> the hearing testimony. Gold mine. How, the problem is these books, how do I pull the women's groups out of it? <coughs> how do you do that? These books, okay, so to give you a hint, going back to 1833, each book's about that thick, they would probably stretch from here to that couch. <laughs> and they, they're literally tiny print like a phone book. They do, uh, literally, they stretch from here to that couch. They would, yeah, four, hmm. six shelf bookshelves. It occurs to me you Maybe don't beyond that couch, actually. You, you wouldn't necessarily have to track year by year. You could just look at, um, you could take a smaller subset of all of the books. So like maybe every, every, every. Okay, do a sample. Right. Okay. So I could do a random sample of pages or something like that. Right. Or, or. Except the problem is that they're alphabetical. And so 
you're gonna, it's gonna be highly idiosyncratic to what your, your sample is gonna be highly idiosyncratic to the pages you happen to sample because there are some pages, there'll be page after page after page that have no women's groups and then there'll be pages that have tons. Okay. Do you wanna know the answer? Yes. <laughs> you sit down in the basement of the library by yourself. I was really laptop. hoping that there was a clever yeah, like way this. to do it. <laughs> and you know how many entries you end up with? How many? 8,900. And you know what your eyesight goes down to? 2040. So, so that's what I did. I mean, it's crazy, but I've got this great data set, and I'm still playing with it, and I'm still... And it turns out there are these fantastic human beings at Penn State who have created, who have a data set of all congressional hearings, and they have them all coded by subject matter. So I can actually, it's painstaking, but I can actually match my hearing codes to their hearing codes and see how they coded it. And I can, because of that, I can tell, say, in a, there are about, um, there are, I think, how much is it? I think something like 20, 20 roughly 20, major codes, and then within that there are minor codes. The major codes are like agriculture, defense, foreign policy, and then there are minor codes within those, so agriculture subsidies, you know, farm, uh, I don't know, um, you know, land use or whatever. Um, so there are about 220 total kind of little codes. And I can actually look for any code, major code or minor code, what percentage of all hearings in that topic area over time women's groups have appeared in. So it's very cool. So that's what I'm doing now. And um, what is really interesting is that, and I'm still sort of cleaning up the data. I mean, that's just a massive undertaking. But what's really interesting is that my intuition was right. Um, women are appearing, not well, actually my intuition was right and it's even a bigger problem than I thought. Women's groups are appearing less frequently. Dramatic decline um, in the number of appearances per decade, starting in 1981. Part of that is that Congress is holding fewer hearings, um, but um, let's see, did I show you guys? I showed you guys the foreign policy hearings from this, didn't I? I think I did, yeah. Um, so Congress is holding fewer hearings, but even if you control for the fact that there are fewer opportunities for women's groups to appear, they're still going down. Um, they're also appearing on fewer and fewer topics. So, and the most important finding is that women's groups, and this is totally intuitive, but I can actually measure it, which is really cool, Women's groups are appearing um, on, an, on kind of, are, inc are increasingly likely to appear on, um, in, def in defense of sort of women's particular um, interests, women's rights, women's status, you know, policies that affect, directly affect women as women, sort of feminist issues essentially when you think about it. So in the 1950s and before, in the 1960s, women would go and lobby on sort of general purpose bills, you know, sort of things for the general public good, reducing juvenile delinquency, you know, um, you know increasing international cooperation, um, you know, funding UNICEF, um, you know, getting clean food and drug laws. I mean, things that affected everybody that they saw as sort of good government reforms. By the 70s, 80s, and 90s, particularly the 80s and 90s, women are, you know, instead of lobbying for, um, you know, uh, multilateral negotiations and foreign policy, their foreign policy engagement is more likely to be, you know, women's equality in the foreign service. So they're picking off these narrow kind of women-centric pieces of sort of larger issues. And you see that across domains. You see it in foreign policy, you see it in um, human services, you see it in the law, you see it in, you know, all these different kind of subject areas. So you have a question, Bruin? Well, I'm, just, I'm not going to ask you to speculate on massive data, but I mean, do you think that's partly a result of 
you know, the women's rights. Movement. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is totally that's but totally like, what it's, it's about. It's kind of counterintuitive, as it seems like the fact that like women are helping humanity less as they get more rights. Exactly. No, exactly. That's right. So and so the irony is that, and also that because as women have you know, gained political status, have gained economic status, have, you know, gained education, all these predictors of civic engagement, they become more and more narrowly focused. Now, you know, these are all fine issues. You know, I absolutely, you know, I don't think I'm being partisan in saying I believe women and men should have equal rights. Like, I'm glad there are women's groups doing this. <coughs> but I think something has been lost that we really don't account for very well in terms of sort of women's voice. And I think that's what the Million Mom March was kind of showing us, was that there are all these women out there, individual women, who, yeah, they want their equal rights and they want equal pay and, you know, whatever, but they also want to be engaged in these kind of broader public issues that are not feminist issues per se. Um, can you hold for one second? Yeah, Let sure. me just show you a yeah. picture because I just, I, these are literally hot off the presses. I just did some coding, uh, recoding and stuff. So I just, um, let me see, get on this unstapled and give you guys, this is just, I'm working on this paper, revising a paper that looks at one policy domain, which is international affairs. So that collapses the like the foreign policy and the defense policy categories in this coding scheme. Um, and the, so I told you Congress has declined, the number of congressional hearings has declined overall, but there's at least one area, I haven't looked at all of them, but there's at least one area where they've really gone up, which is uh, foreign policy. So Congress, you guys, you have PBS 114, when I was talking on about you know, kind of the resurgent Congress after Vietnam, um, this top line on the first graph shows the, um, the number of foreign policy hearings that Congress has held each decade overall. So you can see it's going up dramatically, even though congressional hearings across all domains are going down, this one's going up. But the bottom line is, you know, women's groups' appearances. So, I mean, you look in the 1950s, there were fewer, women had less status, there were fewer women's groups, but they were, ha they were appearing more. And it turns out women were really active in getting the UN in place, getting the U.S. to sort of you know, join the UN. They were very, very active in UNICEF, funding, you know, the United Nations Children's Fund. That's what that stuff is. They were really engaged in the 40s after World War II, which is not on here because the master data set doesn't start until 47, but women's groups were all over the place in kind of European reconstruction, the Marshall Plan, I mean, lobbying for that. I mean, really big, important issues. By the 90s, they've almost disappeared. <laughs> um, the groups that were the big organizations that were doing all the work in the 50s basically disappear. They're legal women voters, in the 1990s, one chapter of League of Women Voters appeared once on a foreign policy question. That's it, just once in the entire decade. Um, and instead, what you get is these kind of more professional staff organizations that are looking out, you know, mostly for sort of women's interests <coughs> in developing countries and in the U.S. Foreign Service. That's what the these paucity, this paucity of appearances in the 90s shows. Um, so <coughs> if you want to look at the second graph, um, this shows the um, the, the Number of women's foreign policy appearances as a share of all for, of all uh, foreign policy hearings, and it's actually per 100 hearings. So the top lines that are between 20 and 25, that means that women's groups are appearing, you know, 23 times for every 100 policy um, hearings, foreign policy hearings, and it goes down to you know kind of closer to two or three by the 1990s. So you see a pretty that's a pretty dramatic decline, um, and then. The, th the third chart is defense. As a practical matter, it's very hard to separate foreign policy from defense. They're sort of two sides of the same coin and, they, and they're coded in a confusing way in the data set, so it's actually easier just to combine them, which is what I did with the fourth graph, but um, you see a somewhat similar trend, although not as pronounced with defense. Um, 
So, um, you know, since the 1960s, Congress has kind of been pretty flat, but, you know, women's groups, again, have gone down. And then the fourth graph combines those two figures. Um, and so, um, you know, because, because of the scale, it's hard to see that, the, that this is actually a pretty significant decline. Um, you're going from like 250 down to like, what is it, 60 or something like that. I didn't bring the exact numbers, but um, total appearances. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty stunning decline. Um, you know, if I, if I made the whole thing 500, you would see it, you know, a really deep, deep decline. So um, anyway, so I mean, I think, you know, I think about, you know, Cindy Sheehan and, and you know, she's somebody who's very controversial and has said some very controversial and, and probably unwarranted things. Um, but, you know, I began thinking about how she sort of became vilified. I mean, here's this mom who, you know, it's kind of this plain <coughs> mom whose kid is killed in Iraq and she's furious about it and, you know, she's out there pitching a tent and outside Crawford and, you know, you can disagree with her, her methods and you can, dis you know, you can disagree with the fact that she, you know, hangs out with Hugo Chavez and, you know, she said some, <laughs> some things that are a little out of the mainstream. But, um, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, I can't help but believe that in an earlier day, you know, women's groups, they were the big pacifists. I mean, they were the ones who were out there kind of, you know, lobbying for peace. And, and I have to believe that if this had happened 50 years ago, Cindy Sheehan would not be pitching her tent alone. I mean, she would have the oomph of like lots of women's groups behind her. Um, and so, you know, and I'm not, I'm not making a claim that the Iraq war is good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying that, you know, in, I mean, women's groups were arguing for keeping us out of World War II. I mean, they were, which I don't think would have been wise, but Nonetheless, I mean, there's a lot of a priori reason based on women's groups' history to expect that they would have been opposed to this war and would have been active. Um, you know, instead you have this kind of lone individual who comes off looking like a lone nut in a sense, partly because she's alone um, and partly because she's done some nutty things. But, um, but anyway, so that's what I've been working on, and, and I would love to take your questions. Yeah. Oh, wait, you had you were first. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I was just wondering if you looked at, say, average number of groups lobbying for particular I wonder if that's constant along the yeah. period, and I wonder if women's dropping off, women's right. groups dropping off from this, has coincided with other groups taking yeah. the charge. And that's that a great question. Women's groups are just yep. specializing more. Right, and I think I think you've the first question is really important, and I, you know, in the middle of this project, I realized as much as I don't want to have to do this because I just yes. forgot to stop at some point, I need to do that. I need to take. A, and this is where I will do a sample because I'm not getting near those books again. Um, send, send somebody else. Yeah, my RA will like right, right, jump no, off the Yeah, I was going to say, hire some RA. So, yeah, right, with all the money I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Junior faculty don't get that much money. Um, you know, I, I, I am going to do, I have to think of a sampling strategy, so I'm open to ideas. Um, but I do want to sort of look at, you know, so who is, you know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe take it, take it the kind of debate that women's groups are really active in in the 50s and sort of look at the same debate in the right. 70s and the same debate in the 90s and see you know, kind of what is the mix of interest groups that are testifying and how does it change. And I'm going to do that because it's really important and I don't know the answer, um, but it's, it's hugely important. And I think the issue of specialization is exactly right. Um, you know, in the old days, um, you know, women's groups kind of took on this kind of very broad issue portfolio because there weren't other organizations doing right, it. That's, yeah. And because we have had this kind of explo interest group explosion, I mean, we have, there are all these terms bandied about in the literature, um, there are groups that just, you know, there's a group for everything in America, and they have become increasingly specialized. And so that's my intuition exactly, is that, you know, women's groups sort of thought, well, you know, we don't need to do gun control because there's two gun control groups in Washington doing gun control. So we'll just kind of lend our kind of 
moral support, but we'll really focus on women's rights. And you know, and so that's part of it, I think. The other part of it is the groups that were really active, these big mass membership organizations that had you know, hundreds of thousands of members um, are graying. Um, I mean, I'm active in the League of Women Voters in my hometown, Arlington, Virginia, and I was a delegate to their national con the national convention in June in Minnesota, and you know I I made the youth caucus for four years, you know I mean it's scary I mean I'm not young this is not my actual hair color I mean <laughs> you know <laughs> and these organizations are graying and you know so they're and and they're just not bringing in newer members and this is uh, something that all these big organizations are facing. Um, and you know, the sort of the nature of participation has changed. And you know, your generation, you guys don't connect in the way that people's women or certainly people in general connected 50 years ago. And I mean, that's a whole other huge question. But but I think so. It's partly that these big groups that had lots of members and lots of resources to be able to lobby, you know, are dying off, graying, dying off. And partly that there was a specialization really fast that was happening. So yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, you were next. Yeah. Do you think that she's created a positive or a negative impact for like, like active, um, activism in women's groups? Like oh, that's interesting. Like yeah. The, the fact that she did that, do you think that women's groups will now be <coughs> more likely to come out, or, or will they like not because of the fear that they'll be labeled as? Yeah. I don't. I don't think she's had any. Imp I, I'd be surprised if she's had any impact on women's groups in particular. I think what's happening, and I'm not an expert on anti-war groups, but I was on a panel with somebody who is, and I think what's happening is that the anti-war movement is really largely made up of new groups that have formed to oppose this particular war. Mm -hmm. It's not old groups that are being activated around, you know, in opposition. So, um, I mean, the, the biggest women's group is Code Pink, which is this kind of amorphous thing. I'm not even really sure that they have kind of an office. They seem to be have a very broad mission, sort of anybody can be a member who shows up at an event. I mean, they're not highly structured. It's not a highly structured group the way, say, the League of Women Voters is, or the Daughters of the American Revolution, or some of these traditional organizations. Um, but I don't, I don't think that the existing women's groups are that are, are that likely to become engaged. I think that the anti-war movement is going to be largely led by, you know, newcomers, newly formed organizations, rather than older groups becoming mobilized. That's that's my sense. I mean, it could change, but. I mean, I know we, you know, when I was at the League of Women Voters meeting, you know, most we did not spend a lot of time talking about, you know, some of those sort of foreign policy-oriented issues. Um, those were just not hot topics for debate. It was mostly, um, you know, domestic policy, and you know, so. But you know, take that from me. I think you were next, right? Yeah. Um, well, it just it seemed interesting to me when you talked earlier about uh, these women's groups having huge memberships because women by and large didn't work back back then yeah. and they do now. They had a lot of time on their hands. There were a lot of very intelligent board housewives. Yeah. Um, and you said that all, some of the drop-off now might be explained by the fact that women have become empowered. It also, it just, I mean, this is my intuition, you know, there's nothing backing yeah. it up, but it, it seems to me that a lot of the lack of sort of broad the interest in, in other things, the interest yeah. outside of the feminist issues was fueled by a, a, a large unemployed intelligent population yeah. who had varied interests and that the kind of person who would be involved in a women's interest group these days, um, either if you know if they're intelligent and they're mm -hmm. well educated has the option of going into the workplace. Yeah. Or going into a women's group because they care strongly about women's issues. Right. I, don't, I don't know if that 
No, that's right. I mean, what, so there's, I, if, if what I hear you saying is, you know, if I'm, if I'm somebody who cares a lot about, um, uh, uh, you know, juvenile violence, you know, 50 years ago, I would have, that I would have been a member of the League of Women Voters and I, or the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and I would have said, you know, we got to do something about juvenile violence. We're women, we have children, you know, let's play that maternal card and let's do something about juvenile violence. I would have done it through that route. I mean, now if you're a woman and you care about juvenile violence, you can become, you know, a prosecutor. You can join a, um, you know, a non-gendered organization. You know, I mean, there's all these different ways that you can have an impact, and I think that's absolutely true. So, this goes to the question of sort of, do individual women have they lost their voice on policy issues they care about? And I think the answer is sort of yes and no, as all answers are in political science. I mean, no in the sense that, you know, any individual women, woman can get involved on an issue through multiple means. I mean, you can vote based on it, you can run for office, you can be a professional in a nonprofit organization, you can be a professional in government, you can join a non-gendered group, you can join a women's group. You know, there's lots of ways you can have your say or your impact on that issue. What I think is missing though, and this is, it's, you've kind of stumbled on the kind of the big elephant in the room on this project, is it strikes me that something is missing about women's voice. That there's something about sort of a collective voice that has, that matters for kind of representation and for debate. I mean, women used to be really good at sort of claiming this kind of moral authority they had as the kind of, you know, the good, good government, you know, um, you know, we're not, we're not bogged down in all that icky, messy, corrupt political stuff. That's the guys. You know, we're above that. We're above the fray. We're mothers. We're good government. We're, we're, we're interested in results. We're very practical. I mean, they used a lot of this language. And they did it, and they used it in, in a kind of collective sense. And, and they brought a lot of moral authority to these debates in a way that, you know, if I send my contribution to the anti-juvenile violence coalition of Durham, my voice isn't heard. You know, or that perspective isn't heard, right? And I think that's that's sort of what's missing. That there, and and there's also this flip side, which is that just from uh, in terms of recruitment, you know, getting more people involved, you know, most people are busy and they'd rather have other people be involved. That's the free rider problem, right? But one way to overcome that is by kind of tapping into sort of people's solidarity, you know, um, or people's sense of kind of groupness. So women's groups used to be really good at saying. You know, we women have this perspective, and you know, you join a women's group because you be with other people who have this female perspective on things, and and you know, we have a common experience and a common background. It's you know, it's why ethnic organizations are very successful at organizing, right? They can tap into this kind of sense of solidarity and reinforce it. And women's groups used to do that a lot, and and so just from in terms of the magnitude of participation, having that kind of gender card to play used to be really effective. You know, it used to be. It magnified people's participation, or it brought more people into civic engagement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and I, I thought that was really interesting. Kind of that by by joining the workforce, they've lost their outside authority yeah. to speak on things that they weren't involved in. Um, but the brunt of mine was more like, and uh, getting outside of gender issues for a second, if there's sort of a large group of people who could potentially become involved, and they're all intelligent, mm -hmm. uh, you have the group A, which is uh, maybe a tenth of them who really cares, and no matter what, they're going to go out and they're going right. to become involved in the issues. Right. Then you have the other ninety percent, Group B, right. and they care, right. but they're doing it because they're bored. Um, and if they have an opportunity to become employed, they're not going to be doing you know this this kind of civic work. Right. They're going to right. become 
teachers, lawyers, right? They'll get their meaning. Policemen, their and, and I yeah. thought that that might explain that yeah. again, in just intuitively, yeah. the majority of the drop off is that yeah, that's probably yeah, there are a few women out there who shifted from being in heavily involved in women's groups to yeah. being heavily involved in anti-war movements mm -hmm. or whatever. But the mo most of them just got jobs, and yeah. just like the rest of yeah. the people who aren't don't care deeply enough to get yeah. involved in the nonprofit. Well, and a lot of stuff that was that used to be done sort of through volunteer work and is now professionalized. And so <coughs> women are still maybe doing the same thing, but they're just doing it in the context of a professional staff, you know, being members of a professional staff. Well, yeah, staff. but I would, I would still place that in that first group then, yeah. instead of going to the nonprofit world and go to the profit world yeah. focused in on what you care about. Yeah. And the majority of the people just don't do that. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I was just, th that's a really great point, I, I think, um, because when you were talking about where the women's groups were coming from earlier, um, I, like, just, I'm a history major too, mm -hmm. so, like, I had three predictions before you, before you started talking, and they were, you know, socioeconomically speaking, you're talking about mid to upper mid class, mm -hmm. um, uh, geographic areas, you're talking about um, housewives, suburbia mm -hmm. and um, alt alternatives to participation in these groups you know not many mm -hmm. and um, I, th I think that's shifting and I, I just I wonder if there there are two sides a it these people really are dis disappearing their participation is disappearing because it's fusing into the workforce mm -hmm. um, you have this um, <coughs> gap um, between income and and survivability such that Mid to upper mid classes these days, a lot of people, a lot mm -hmm. of households have both parents working yep. because they need to to, yep. to support. Yep. The other side is, um, are they just, are their voices being absorbed into these larger, more specialized groups? Mm -hmm. Right. And it, and you know they might not be heard as a whole, but right. they're still being. But their heard. perspectives are affecting the yeah. debates that are going on within organizations. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think it's really important to see who yeah. is at these meetings. Yeah. If the if right. the women groups are not who is right, you know right, yeah, and there's I think that's I think that's true, and I don't know how I would measure it as a social yeah. scientist in the context of this kind of project. I think it's certainly a good hypothesis, and there's probably a great deal of truth to it. Um, that said, it's also true that, and I made a, I made a sort of a kind of a similar point in a paper, and I was taken to task, okay, and I think somewhat rightly and somewhat wrongly. You know, I made the point. I made the argument that, well, gosh, if you know, women can be the secretary of state as they have been in the last two administrations. Sure. You know, why do we need women's groups lobbying for foreign policy? We've got the you know the de the decider is a woman, right? right yeah. So, uh, does it really matter? And and I mean, I think the answer to that is, you know, <clears throat> partly partly that's a fair point. You know, you do have women who are influencing internal debates about organizational priorities and organizational know how they want to frame their mission and mm -hmm. so forth so <coughs> that's right but I think it's also true that you know if you're the executive director of a nonprofit organization or you're the Secretary of State you're not representing women you're representing everybody yeah you know and so there's a limit on how you know on the extent to which your you know female sensibility or female rhetoric or whatever can really kind of be conveyed you're not speaking as a woman you're speaking as the executive director or the Secretary of State especially if we're still in a point at a point in time, yeah. professionally speaking, that yeah. that in order to get to that position, they kind of have to yeah. play the game, yeah. you know, yeah. which might not give them as much freedom yeah. to to represent the same groups. Yeah. So it's um, a fair point. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting um, to sort of uh, if you if you have the the difference now between the sort of like 
kind of feminist backlash where like I have a career, I don't need to go off and do this in my spare time. Yeah. Um, versus the you know the the old like everybody sees like you know like the suffragettes like that that comes to my head or if there's like a generation gap mm -hmm. between when this sort of drop off because a lot of these organizations that are specialized are much newer mm -hmm. and younger and so yep. in, like after a certain point in history women getting involved would if assuming they're switching yeah. to other groups would not be joining women's groups and that's probably why you know you said you made the youth progress right. like, <laughs> like I'm sure the the women's groups the they're older you know it's like yeah. it's, and these groups like if they'd be dying out or yeah. um or you know because you'll, you'll find like you know yuppie or like you know suburban mothers now would probably be joining specialized groups um and like where that cutoff point is yeah probably i mean i know it adds a lot more to consider but it's it's really hard to get a handle on that because we don't have very good data on group participation individual participation in groups mm -hmm. i mean there have been some there are some surveys that have asked about it um, the problem is what I need is a consistent measure of at home, and it's the closest thing I have is a general social survey, and they keep changing the that particular question, so it's just, I would love it. I would love yeah. to get that, but it's just the, the data are just pretty scarce. And I, I started messing around with the general social survey questions on group participation at one point, and um, I need to, I need to kind of do it again and figure out sort of the quirks of that survey to make sure that I'm drawing but it did show a decline um, in participation, and I don't remember exactly the cutoff, but you've also got, you know, you've got sort of two effects that are going on at the same time. You've got an age cohort effect, and you've got this sort of changing time, you know, the, um, the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cohort effect and the other, blanking on the other word, but I mean, the effect of time, basically, passing the exogenous shocks that affect everybody. Um, to sort of sort out those two things, but yeah. I was just wondering how much you look at certain individual powerhouses and like, because like DAR and now are compared to like you know pre seventies versions of themselves are almost ineffectual compared to the amount of like power or say or participation because like you know during the Amer American Revolution, you know taken back 50 years, th they actually you know, spoke out about things, mm -hmm. and now they're almost reduced to like tea parties and essay <laughs> contests. Don't tell my Aunt Zita. Uh, you know, the huge participation <laughs> has been almost, yeah. it's almost neutered as a sense. I mean, do you feel like... There's spade. Do you feel like there's there's just that women's organizations, yeah. unless they're in, in sense of only caring about women's issues, are kind of just going to go extinct? I think, I mean, I think women's groups are still influential on issues that affect women. I mean, I think now is, you know, or the NARAL, whatever it's called now, um, um, you know, are really influential on when, you know, abortion bills come up or, you know, women's rights bills come up. They, they still matter. They do. Um, but women's groups are not influential on non-women's issues anymore. And I think there is this, you know, I I believe, and I think this was what the women, the gun control march showed, is that there is this kind of hunger on the part of women to sort of connect in some way, use that solidarity and connect and have and amplify their individual voice in a sort of collective voice on issues that extend beyond, you know, abortion and, and you know, equal pay. Um, and domestic violence. I mean, these are really important issues that I think women care about a lot broader things, and they don't really have a way of 
expressing it as women. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like they've become more specialized and, and influential in a narrower area, as you, as you rightly pointed out, as they become more, you know, they've acquired more sort of what we call civic resources. They've got more to bring to bear on public debates. They're more educated, they're more media savvy, they're more, you know, they have higher political status. Some of these elections, they're the swing voters, right? The soccer moms. Um, but they've kind of narrowed their perspective. And, and narrowed. The women that you surveyed when you did the, um, the march and you yeah. talked to them, did you ask them about the parts that if they were in groups? Um, I asked them um, how they, and this is going back seven years now, I asked them how they learned about the march. Okay. And so that, you know, and I gave them a bunch of <coughs> options. So, you know, that gave me some proxy, like through a women's group, through church, through. Um, but I didn't, so I, I was interested in whether, because the number one predictor of whether you participate is whether you're asked, and networks, you know, the more engaged, the more enmeshed you are in sort of different organizational networks, the more likely you are to be asked, right? Because, you know, you see people and they need help. And, um, so they ask you for help. Um, you know, Ted Kaczynski didn't. You know, didn't get asked a lot. He didn't do a lot of things because he's living in a shack in Montana, <laughs> sending unibombs. So, um, so I, so I was interested in sort of their networks, um, but I didn't ask them, like, I didn't ask, I didn't ask them the standard question of like how many groups are, do you belong to or anything like that. I asked them more guns and pills or march specific. Did you find out? You know, how did you find out about it? I think I asked them, are you here with anyone from an organization? Actually. I wanted to see, you know, I heard that there were churches that were going to send buses, and so I do have that question. And I don't remember the I don't remember the percentages. It's been seven years since I looked at this. <laughs> I was just curious if people, you know, women who got in, engaged or something like that, but it was more of an individual. Thing well, okay, I did ask that, and this was counterintuitive. So I was I was doing this survey at the same time I was working on the Bowling Alone book, and so my boss, my advisor, Bob Putnam, um, said, you know, I bet that you know. Even though this march is being organized over the internet, and you know you have a lot of people just sort of who seem to be spontaneously exciting, they're going to show up. <coughs> so I bet you know that people that you're that you're, most of those people came because they were asked because they were mobilized through a network. And and he said I also he also thought that people who were mobilized who were who were mobilized through a network were going to be more likely to stay involved in an issue over time than people who just kind mm -hmm. of responded to. Donna Dees goes on Oprah, and I'm sitting by myself watching TV, and I say, I'm going to go to that march. I mean, he thought that those people, those kind of individually mobilized people, would be less involved over time, and it turned out not to be true. I didn't, I, the, the coda to the original survey, what I didn't tell you was that six to eight months later, I did a follow-up survey of a subsample of the original people, and I asked them, so what have you done since the march? And I gave them this long checklist of everything you could have done from very simple things, like put a bumper sticker on my car, to really intense things. Like I organize a chapter of the Million Mom March organization and everything in between. And I think I have like 25 different things they could have done. And so, you know, they just have to check the boxes. And so I could actually go back using regression analysis and say, you know, what predicts sustained involvement? And I had different measures of involvement. And I expected that one thing that would predict sustained involvement would be integration in a network, having been recruited through a network. And it wasn't true. The people who were you know, sitting there watching TV and saying, "This is I agree with you, Donna. I'm coming to your march." Those people were just as likely to be involved over the, you know, the long term, mm -hmm. and as deeply involved as people who 
came to where Mobile actually got it. So it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. I was wondering if in your research you've come across any trends in perhaps a decline in the way that social activism is imparted to children and teens and to students mm. in particular, and yeah. has this impacted um, their, uh, I guess, role in yeah. these statistics? Um, the closest I've come to looking at the issue of young people and activism is I did a paper on volunteer volunteering, which is not activism, but it, I mean, it, it could in theory include activist group volunteering. Um, so the um, we had this big data set that uh, Bob Putnam used for his book, um, relied on pretty heavily, that asked a question about, you know, have you um, how much you volunteered, I can't remember the exact wording, but um, you know, how many hours you volunteered in the last week or something <coughs> like that. And um, so every, if you look at sort of every measure of civic participation, which is down, basically, you know, voting, petition signing, going to a meeting, you know, um, you know, writing your congressman, having a picnic with your family, I mean, any kind of social or civic thing, no matter what it is, it's just the, the lines are just all down, 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 down. One exception, volunteering, up. So this was this puzzle, like what's going on with volunteering if every other form of connectedness is down? And so, <coughs> so I looked at that, and what I found was that the entire upward trend, almost the entire upward trend, was being driven by older people, seniors. Um, so if you, if you disaggregate the volunteering trends by age cohort, like people your parents' age, like you know, people who are like 30, maybe 30 through 55, or somewhere in that middle-aged people, you know, middle-aged people today are much less likely to volunteer than middle-aged people 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So that cohort is down. Seniors, up. Seniors today are much more likely, and this is controlling for health and all these other things that you might predict. You know, they're just up. Um, so there's something about today's seniors, they're more civic-minded, you know, um, than seniors were 50 years ago. The other Ooh. exception is young people. Hold on one second. So if you looked at the younger group, their volunteering is up a little bit too. Like seniors are pulling most of it, most of the trend line. Boomers are pulling it down, and, and, and young people were pulling it up. Now this was young people, this, this survey ended in 98, I think, so this is, would have been people who were <coughs> in their 20s, late teens and 20s, in you know, late 90s, yeah, 10 years ago. But that line was up a little bit. And I, the data didn't give me any way to directly figure out what was going on, but my hunch is, that it has to do with mandatory um, civil civic service, um, community service programs in schools, because this coincided with this kind of trend around the country of instituting, you know, you have to, I'm sure, how many of you guys had a community service department? Yeah, okay, my, I mean, I graduated from high school in 83, and I mean, we had little clubs and stuff, but it was not an ethos at my high school. It was certainly not required. So this is something that really is affecting, like your generation and people a little bit older than you are. And that's right, and I suspected that people kind of it was partly picking up people who had actually done it through their high school, but partly picking up on, you know, probably people got instilled with a sense of community service and continued it in their 20s. Um, so, you know, again, the number one reason why you participate is you were asked, and in this case, you're required to. Um, and I, so I think, you know, in terms of inculcating this kind of civic mindedness in, in young people, you know, there, there really has been a, a real transformation, both a normative one and, and institutionally. I used to work at the Corporation for National Community Service and neglected that little part of my autobiography. But um, so I was actually working on, you know, research and stuff like that for the AmeriCorps program and, and you know, sort of looking at, you know, the, the raft of volunteer 
you know, well-funded volunteer programs that the federal government is involved in and the nonprofits are delivering. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I see Food for All Time and Clients for Food for America and, you know, those, those organizations, you know, all were created around the same time period, early 90s. Um, they all were struggling, I used to cover them. I mean, they were all struggling for funding. You know, the National Service Bill comes through and all of a sudden they've got this dedicated federal funding and that saved them. They were all about to go under, City Gear, Food for America. Um, they were really in dire straits. So, you know, there's, there are a lot more opportunities and that's corresponding with this kind of norm, I think, that, that community service is really an important thing to do in our lives. So, um, we, we're five minutes over, so I think. <laughs> Anybody? I don't want to keep you guys from being around. I had one last question. Um, this is actually going back to the gun stuff, if you don't mind. Um, I, I'm just wondering if you sort of what your answer was in your dissertation because oh dear God. I mean, well, I <laughs> a very quick summary because yeah. I mean, I, I it's not quick. the statistic <laughs> I remember is that uh, per capita the U.S. has ten times the gun violence of like other rich Western nations. I come from. Uh, Canada, where uh, oh. a few years no, but yeah. a few the years ago, you know, there was a giant gun registry Mark where everyone yeah. in the country After had the to shootings in Quebec, yeah. register. And then um, Paul Martin, in the one year he was in office, was going to uh, institute another big gun yeah. ban. I think they're about to revoke the registry in Canada, actually. Well, I mean, yeah, now we have Stephen Harper, but um, <laughs> but at least it was it it was a big issue up yeah. there. Yeah. So. Why is it everywhere but the United States? Um, that's, that's a really big, long question. Okay. <laughs> but just remember, I, uh, my dissertation focused on, not on the policy outcome, but on the scope of the mobilization. So my dependent variable was the size of the movement. Is, so. there more, is there more in the way of movements in all of these other countries? Did you look at that? Oh, no, that's a good, uh, that's a good point. Um, I see what you're getting at. No, I mean, I think the sense is that, you know, in Canada, you did not have a formidable gun lobby. So you didn't, in some, you know, in a, in a sense, you didn't need a movement. I mean, the po political leaders could take care of it. Same as in Australia, they have the same deal. I mean, I, I spoke with a, an activist from Australia who sort of led, the, they had a similar deal in Australia. They had, you know, in a, another, you know, sort of Anglo-British colony frontier experience. I mean, very much like Canada, US, Australia, very similar cases in some ways. They had a big massacre in, in um, Tasmania. I shot took out an Uzi or whatever it was and shot a bunch of tourists and they passed gun control like that. And I remember asking this woman who was sort of involved in the, it was a very short-lived campaign. Political leaders were like, yeah, we need gun control. Um, and I said, why did it pass so quickly, so easily, you know, as opposed to the U.S.? And she said, mandatory voting. And I know that's not the case in Canada, right? You guys no, don't no, have mandatory no, voting. But, but her point in Australia was that because everyone voted, um, and if I bring this up in 114, you guys did I talk about it? Okay, yeah. that's, right. that's right, I did. So because everyone voted, the political leaders didn't need to be worried about kind of small, intense, concentrated interests, right? Because the majority will, the majority were just not going to penalize the politicians who voted for gun control in the way that they, you know, because everybody's voting. They yeah. didn't have to worry so much about the few intense people who were certain to show up because everybody's certain to show up or you get penalized. Um, so, you know, I think part of it is that your, your gun lobby is not anywhere near as formidable as ours. And there's a whole kind of, that's a whole other discussion of why the NRA is so strong. But, um, but you guys also, in Canada, um, um, you don't have anywhere near the, um, I mean, your, your gun laws were going mostly, as I understand it, at, hand, at handguns, right? 
I, I believe so. And you don't have anywhere near as many handguns as we have. You have you have a lot of guns, but they're mostly long guns because you're rural. Yeah, well, um, but that's another question. Is yeah. you know, I mean, right. the United <coughs> States has all this gun violence. It has all right. these handguns. Just it has guns in yeah. urban areas, uh, right. and nowhere nowhere else seems to have that culture. Nowhere else has yeah. the gun lobby. Nowhere yeah. else has the gun culture. Yeah. Yeah. We have a gun culture in America. Like it's like it's not even yeah. like yeah. it's an actual culture. Like you don't find this in. Yeah. Let's say Switzerland or everywhere, you know. Yeah. Like you don't find it in <laughs> Europe. You don't find like it's like save it for the midterm <laughs> room. <laughs> you guys are nothing if not subtle. <laughs> Just keep trying to mimic my lecture. <laughs> Score some points. <laughs> I need to write through you guys. <laughs> All right. Well, this was fun, you guys. And uh, see you. Bye. 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 Bye.